Again, Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheep descending, being let down from the heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, and kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how we had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same Spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. We also read from Acts 5, verse 12 to 14. This is one of the eight summaries in Acts describing fellowship in the church. Acts 5, verse 12 to 14. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in in Solomon's portico, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This is God's word. So, no one is born prejudiced, yet prejudging a person's character, their worth, is something everybody learns. In Tallahassee, Florida, we had bought a home prior to moving there, and this neighborhood was composed of mostly white people, white persons. This reality was impressed upon us in full when Mason, who was only four at the time, came running inside because he, quote-unquote, saw a brown person. Now, this little prejudice so early in his life was neither intentional nor malicious. It was produced by geography. It was incited just simply by unfamiliarity. Mason's neighborhood and his, thus his world at the age of four was populated by white-skinned neighbors. And they were the ones who walked by. Peter's neighborhood, the Apostle Peter, his neighborhood, his upbringing was populated by Jews and was shaped, his upbringing was, by prejudice, though it shouldn't have been. Uh, from the moment he first chose the Israelites, God always had a plan to use his chosen people to bless the nations. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. Pretty good so far, right? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So countless Jewish persons listen to this over the centuries, particularly we see this in the Old Testament, and what they hear is great nation, blessings, make your name great, right? That's what I would want to hear as well. We see this throughout the Old Testament. The focus is on we are great, so God, when are you going to make us more great? We are blessed, so Yahweh, when are you going to show us those tangible blessings that you promised in the beginning? It becomes all about us. In fact, with the exception of the post-exilic era and the way we're King Solomon, the laws that the Jewish people take most seriously are the ones that make them distinct from other people. Not to eat what they eat. Not to worship where they worship. Stay away, stay away. Let's stay separate. Now, Acts chapter 11. It's a summary of a much longer Acts chapter 10. So I'm trying to give you the Reader's Digest version here. This marks the inclusion of these other nations, the Gentiles, into God's plan for salvation. And it's so important that Luke shares it twice in chapter 10 and once again in chapter 11. Now, I'm all for for parents who instruct their kids to obey first time. All right? You know, when you say something, pay attention and do it first time. That's the whole idea when you're parenting from ages you know, three to six. But then they get to six and seven, and you kind of give up on a lot of that, to be honest. I'm all, still, I'm all for it. If, if God has you do it all the way through age 12, God bless you, you're a better parent than I am. We have definitely reverted to the three times principle, something like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> and that's often when our kids kind of get it. I think God, ever the loving parent, is, is, if our father is saying to his kids here in Acts, Hey, 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 three times to make sure he gets our attention, to help us pay attention to what he's saying here. Because you guys see, Peter wasn't born prejudiced. He grew up in a culture that had long twisted the promise of God for personal gain, for personal status. And the same went for this interrogating circumcision party who were all for Christian conversions, as long as people also converted to the way we act and the way we look as Jews, right? So as long as you, if you convert to Christianity, that's great, but also convert to our dress, our style, our way of worship, that would make us most comfortable. Peter grew up being able to hear little else from the promise of Abraham, other than the stuff that affected him, right? You are God's chosen. You are blessed. Your name with this people is great, kind of like winning a prize. Who here has ever won a prize over $100 in worth? I know someone recently who won that great ESSO prize, right? The famous ESSO prize that we all compete for and get multiple gallons of gas for. And that's fantastic. The moment you hear of it, you don't care how you won or whom you have to share those winnings with. What do you care about? How do I collect my prize, right? And how much did I get? Peter's in that predicament. He can only hear when he hears the riches of the promise to Abraham about God's chosen people. How does it affect me? How is it about me? So he needed to hear the Lord Jesus say, hey, Peter, hey, hey. So Jesus confronts him first in a vision in which he speaks this parable about unclean animals. But really it's about those he's judged as unclean people. Hey, Peter. 
Then the Spirit tells him to get up from this vision, drop what he's doing, and go down to these prejudged outcasts who show up knocking at the door. Hey, Peter. Then one of those prejudged people named Cornelius says, he's been visited by an angel, was directed to Peter, and would hear from him some message that would save him and his whole household. Hey, (laughs) Peter. I'm trying to tell you something here. I'm trying to show you something about not only my plan for salvation, but about your own heart. And that is that prejudice runs deep. If Peter needed to hear three times, and Luke repeated it three times, we need to dedicate an entire Sunday to address the prejudice that runs right through the middle of our own hearts and even through our church. Now, I think all of us are on board with the vision of an Ephesians 2 church. That vision of no matter the difficulty, we want an inclusive community. People of every race, of every tribe, every tongue, gathering together to sing God's praises and grow through His Word. That's what we want. All of us be like, yes, amen. The problem I think our text addresses is this. We wish to be corporately inclusive, but remain personally exclusive. So when we talk about the church, we talk about groups, we're all about, yes, yes, diversity, more different kinds of people than our personal relationships. Are we willing to pay the sacrifice needed to be inclusive of all different kinds of people? We won't find the strength, the courage, the perseverance to take these sacrificial steps on our own. They can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ who is radically inclusive and made the sacrifice necessary to make inclusivity possible for us in our relationships. So here's the message this morning in a nutshell. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Jesus forges the strongest bonds between me and an unlikely friend. Jesus forges the strongest bond between me and an unlikely friend. Let's talk about how he did this and how he still does this today through our passage including like Jesus. Jesus calls no one common. Have you noticed that when, when Jesus talks about God loving everyone or God loving sort of universally, he's always referring to God the Father. For instance, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. He's talking there about God the Father. God loves everyone. He loves the whole world. Or Matthew 5.45, the Father in heaven makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the Father's umbrella-like, comprehensive love. When Jesus speaks love, it's rarely general, but almost always specific. When Jesus speaks love, it's when a rich man foolishly claims he has perfectly kept the Ten Commandments throughout his whole life. And Mark tells us that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus so admired the personal gift of a a really a nobody of society who intrudes his dinner conversation that we're told that anywhere the gospel would be shared, her story would be told. When on the cross he looked out, he made sure to find his mom, a son to care for her, and to find a disciple, a mom, to nurture him. The Apostle John so understood Jesus' specific love for him that he defined himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus made John feel like the only disciple in the room. He made otherwise common people feel uncommon. 
He wants to spread his love like that, that specific love through a church like ours. This is what we see in verse 9. Jesus says to Peter's prejudice, no. Peter's refusal to be around anything unclean. What God has made clean, Peter, is not called common. There are two kinds of prejudice addressed in this passage, and maybe in life in general. People who are distinct from me, and people who just don't do it for me. They appear to be common. Nice enough to smile out on Sunday morning, maybe shake their hands, but not interesting, funny, engaging, or spiritual enough to have over on a Saturday evening. That's prejudiced. What qualifies God's taking interest in you and I other than we're just another rebellious human being? And yet, he calls us his beloved. He summons angels to rejoice at just one person who turns back to him. He gives gifts, unique sets of gifts for us to bless the world. Jesus calls no one common, and neither should we treat anyone as such. Jesus also makes no distinction. There's this little scene in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. And he prays all night. And he comes down ready to choose 12 disciples. And up on that mountain, he he's clearly sought his father's wisdom on whom he should select to walk this life with him and begin to grow his church together. He chooses a Jew so zealous that he was willing to take up arms and engage in guerrilla warfare to make Israel the champion and subdue all their enemies. He also then puts such an enemy next to Simon at the dinner table. Because that's the way Jesus works. He takes Matthew the tax collector, the most despised of traitors of the Jewish people, and he puts him next to a person who would have committed some kind of guerrilla warfare if he met a tax collector face to face. But through Christ, they become friends. Jesus chooses a wealthy mama's boy like young John, and he pairs him with a scrappy blue-collar fisherman like Peter, an unlikely pair. But through Jesus, they come together, and we saw in Acts chapter 3, They'd fellowship together, walking to the temple together. He chose, Jesus did, Judas Iscariot. Think about it. For three years, Judas Iscariot hung around, heard all the vulnerable stuff, and Jesus trusted him to handle all the money. Unlikely friends. Jesus, guys, didn't have a type. He welcomed all types. And so through the Holy Spirit, Jesus says in verse 12 to Peter, Make no distinction. Paul says later in Galatians 3, 27-28, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no, neither then Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Everybody is a first-class, love, child of God who trusts in Jesus. We've got to do away with these distinctions. Guys, churches, though, grow more quickly in breadth by targeting a type of person. It's called HUP, a homogeneous unit principle. This is a real term, by the way, that churches have used in the 20th and 21st century to grow their church. In fact, there's a prominent evangelical denomination, I'm not going to mention which one, that utilizes the HUP principle. And so, by figuring out who's the same, who's most similar, they plant only white churches. Black churches, Chinese churches, Korean churches, Mexican churches, Haitian churches, and so on and so forth. 
Because this is how a church grows more quickly. And before we object, we can see that it has benefits. That's the dilemma, right? It has benefits with respect to the Great Commission. More people reached more quickly if you get people all of the same type. Doesn't necessarily mean the quicker way is God's way, nor is the bigger church the biblical church. The heterogeneous church is composed of individuals who consciously refuse to settle for their type. People who say, I'm not just going to befriend, I'm not just going to reach out to, I'm not just going to shake someone's hand or have coffee with my type, but instead look for, talk with, work with, live with people who look and act differently from them. We might grow more slowly in breadth because of that, but we'll also grow steadily in depth in relationships. This, though, guys, presents a problem for God. Christian Smith, who's a world-class sociologist and also happens to be an expert in, in churches and church growth, he says, the less distinct the boundaries and the more types in an organization, there's less cohesion to build together something meaningful, right? Because we share less in common. Makes sense, right? Since there's less agreement on what's ultimately meaningful, there's only so much that we can do together the more types of people we try to include. But this also works against the world, doesn't it? And every, every organization who, have, who loves tolerance and celebrates tolerance at all costs. So who, for instance, has seen this bumper sticker before on people's cars? All right, the bumper sticker says, coexist. The C is Islam's crescent moon. The O conveniently has a peace sign in it. The E includes this little arrow and a little plus sign for male and female. The Star of David is substituted for the letter X. The I is a Wiccan totem pole. The S is a yin and yang from the Taoist Chinese philosophy. And finally, carrying at the end, a T represents the cross of Jesus Christ. I was gazing at one of these bumper stickers a little too long a few weeks back in the parking lot at Hurley's, just sitting there, when this woman whose car was affixed to approached me and says, hey, you like my bumper sticker. One of those moments, I clearly stared too long. And... She actually then asked, she asked, you know, do you like my sticker? And so I replied, do you think that's possible? What it says. She says, honestly, like for any religion that stresses love of their fellow human being, yes, I think it's possible. I thought about it for a minute. I thought, you know, I think it is too. We can at least coexist. But I pressed her a little further, as, as I'm, <laughs> I'm wont to do, hopefully not sounding like a jerk, but I pressed her a little further and said, but, but can we co-build? co-produce, co-contribute to something that's much bigger and greater and that's going to outlast us? Can we do that? Can we co-do those things? Even she had to admit, no. There's there's too much disagreement about what's important, what's lasting, whose scriptures are we going to believe in to build all that stuff? It's not possible. She's right. Take for an organization built to address human suffering. All right? Should the suffering person be visited, right, at the hospital? Should, should the laws be enacted by government? Should certain laws be enacted to, to provide government ins- assistance to suffering people? Should that person receive prayer? And if so, about what? Would that person be administered their last rites? Because from my point of view, salvation is still conditional, and you need those last rites before you maybe die. Should we pray for healing? Because that sort of thing still happens today. Or it doesn't. Should we only pray for healing? Like, is, is, 
suffering always and only bad? Or can it be used for good? Can it be used transformatively to grow a person's life and expand their love for God? People don't agree on all these questions. And yet this is the way we can build a group of people to minister to suffering people. So what then is an organization that's both inclusive of all types, but distinctive enough to build, to produce, to contribute to something that's far bigger and will far outlast us? This is the brilliance of the church founded by Jesus Christ. He gives us his very best gift to share between one another, with one another. In John 15 and 16, we're told, Jesus told his disciples, sorry, that he would not abandon them, but he would leave God the Holy Spirit. He would leave to them God the Holy Spirit to live inside of them to all who trust in Jesus Christ. Some of us grew up feeling like the best gift always went to a brother or sister, right? For a birthday, for Christmas, and you looked at me like, why did they always get that? Like my sister, she was the only girl, so she always got the jewelry, they handed down hundreds, worth hundreds of dollars, pearls and things like that for my grandmother. Meanwhile, she got me a little dog made out of golf balls. And I think to myself, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, there's a difference here. And some of us felt like we were this, maybe, the, if we're honest, the spoiled ones. Peter felt that way. Peter thought of himself among the spoiled brothers and sisters, the chosen ones, the ones whose name would be great. But he was wrong. Verse 15, let's read there. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I then that I could stand in God's way? Who was I to stand in God's way when the Holy Spirit is for everyone who would trust Christ? The same shared, precious gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 puts it this way. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We see that theme again. All types and all were made to drink of one spirit together. The same pool. It's all a communal cup that we're passing around of the Holy Spirit. So his showing up And my preaching is neither better nor worse than him showing up through Alina's dancing, through Ruth's hug, through Neil's encouragements, or through Jeff's serving. It's all the same spirit producing beauty through different gifts. The gift is also necessary for meaningful contribution, but it can never be claimed by one person. Ultimately, Christians can build something meaningful to the extent that we trust that the Holy Spirit really can lead us and unite us. It's not going to be just someone's charisma. It's not going to be just someone's gifting. It's not going to be the nicest home that someone has that we can meet in, nor the person who's just been around the longest. We have to believe and trust that it's going to be the Holy Spirit that unites us and leads us, and we can actually keep in step with Him. He can do it. He can be trusted because He loves us. Jesus is also the strongest bond between me and an unlikely friend because Jesus can change minds. Jesus can change minds. The Apostle Paul once said that the more often and the more clearly that you seek, consider, think on, and behold Jesus, the more that we change. The more that we change 
as Christians, the more that our thinking changes about other people, including our neighbor. Even over deeply held and long beliefs. Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, things that challenged their beliefs, things they never heard before, things they thought, that is crazy what this guy is saying. When they heard that Jesus had done it, and that he sent his Holy Spirit to unite them, they fell silent. Their mind was changing. They glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, to the nations also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, you may have already repented of prejudice. You may have already changed in turn. That's what repentance means about prejudice in your life. Maybe it was the moment you trusted Christ. Maybe you sense God speaking to your heart through somebody you never thought could understand how you feel. Maybe it was at like a conference or someone was speaking and they challenged you, do you need to repent of prejudice in your life? Do you need to change and ask forgiveness? And you did. And that is so awesome. Repentance, however, repentance from prejudice is not a one-time thing. First of all, repentance is never a one-time thing. My, one of my heroes, Martin Luther, described life as a continual act of repentance, turning back to God for forgiveness and to change. Certainly that's true of prejudice. In fact, in Acts 15, the church in Jerusalem drifts back once again into prejudice, asking the question, wait a minute, again, they're converted, but shouldn't they look like and talk like me, a Jew? So we see this just probably a few months or a year later, the church drifts back into prejudice. Peter himself drifted back into prejudice. Galatians 2, 11 through 16. This is Paul speaking. He said, when Cephas, who's Peter, another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. What did he oppose him about? Prejudice. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was eating with Gentile people, not making distinctions between people, going out of his way to be uncomfortable meeting with people who he didn't grow up with, people who weren't like him in his upbringing, people who didn't live in the same place he lived growing up, or even now. He was eating with such people. But then he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, the people who said, look like a Jew, become a Christian, great, but also act like, look like, dress like a Jew. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in in step with the truth of the gospel, I confronted Peter before them all. Peter drifted back into dividing Christians into first-class Christians, second-class Christians. Cool kids at the cool table, common people at the common table. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not being malicious towards them. But it's in the ignoring them. It's in the overlooking them. Peter shows this is not about the gospel anymore. This is about me. Now listen, friends. If we center our lives around the person of Jesus, led, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean everyone will feel included. You know, I asked Kirsten to read from one of eight summaries of early church fellowship from Acts chapter 5. The reason I had her did that, do that is because Acts 5.13 that says that even as God was working and was healing, was moving among the church of God, none of the rest dared join them. Did you hear that? That's interesting. But I thought people would always be attracted to the church if they just came. If they just could see this and what was happening. 
Because Jesus does give his life to destroy death. He brings unity, obliterates prejudice, but he also demands our total trust and allegiance. And for some people, they don't want to give that up. They want to give up a little slice of the pie to Jesus, but they don't want to trust their life to him. As we invite persons to church, as we preach about Jesus, as you share your testimony, as you welcome someone into your community group or just to have coffee, some will exclude themselves because Jesus asks us to trust him with everything. So I want to encourage you, for some of you who maybe you saw someone walk away, or you saw someone say no, or you never heard from someone again, it's likely not because you didn't care enough for them or do enough for them. It might just be because the demand of Jesus was too much for them to trust their life to him. All we can endure is ensure that it's the total trust and allegiance to Jesus which excludes someone who walks away, not are ignoring them or overlooking them because of our prejudice, because we want people who are like our type. So what's the take-home here this morning? Something I prayed about all week and struggled with. I think it's this. Sacrifice like Jesus to make an unlikely friend because that's what his sacrifice made of us, his unlikely friend. More practically, each of us can start by making one inclusive sacrifice this week, today even, an invitation for a meal, an asking and more careful listening to someone's story. Include someone you hadn't before considered including into what you're doing. Change up where you sit on Sunday mornings like Simon encouraged us to do earlier. Change up where you sit. I see some of you doing that this morning. That's awesome. Do the next thing in somebody else's comfort zone, not in yours. These are all ways we can take that next step, that next sacrificial step, because it's going to require sacrifice. And I get, by the way, it's, it's hard enough to be a good friend to our current ones, to our current friends. Some of us are single moms or mothers of young kids just trying to get by. Some of us are parents who are trying to keep up with our kids' extracurriculars when they get a little bit older. Some of us are staffers who miss home, try to get out, mostly for bribes with each other. Some of us are English who only express ourselves at their local pub or over tea at Paperman's. Some of us are Kamanians who prefer their fish Cayman style, but you don't have to tell anybody that. You want them to assume it because they should know, right? Only through the power and example of Jesus Christ crucified can such a sacrifice go from theory to possibility because that's what Jesus did for us sacrificing himself, looking on us, saying, I should not be with them. I should not go down to them. They are nothing like me. They don't love me. They don't care for me. And yet, he went down to us. And he sacrificed for us. I want to close with the story told to me by an old African-American friend and pastor of mine. And it always just stuck with me. It was his third or fourth year in ministry. And he gets a call from a prominent white Christian leader asking to go, to, go out to lunch with him. And as they sit down to eat, this guy starts to just tear up and cry. And he explains, you know, that God has really blessed me, he says. He's got children who are healthy. His ministry is thriving. But he says, I've I've had a hard time sleeping. And my friend was thinking, you know, why is he telling me this? I'm, I'm not a therapist. The man tells him, I just came back from this annual conference on the other side of the country. A bunch of us got together to discuss reconciliation and cross cultural ministry. 
Uh, usually when black leaders come out to the meeting, we try to make them feel right at home and, and encourage them to be part of the decision-making process. But he admitted, he said, the truth is, we made our decisions well before any of your leaders came out. We'd already decided what we wanted to do. And in the meantime, people made little comments, little veiled prejudice comments followed by, well, you know, I'm just being honest about those people. They said, this time, it just didn't sound right to me. And I feel guilty. How, how can I overcome this? The leader was asking through tears, like, how can we be friends? And so my friend was silent for a moment, and he, and he asks, well, let me ask, do you like football? And the leader is kind of taken aback, like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I like football. My friend says, well, I love football too, and I love to cook out. So here's what we're going to do. I need to get you to know you, and you need to get to know me. So why don't you just come over to my house, bring your wife, she can meet my wife. We'll sit down, get to know each other, barbecue some steaks. Let's start there. The leader was a little taken aback, and he said, so you want me to come to your house? He said, yeah. You know, look, if, if you want me to sit here and clear your conscience for all the crap that you've done, I can't do that. Friendship is not cheap. It takes time, it takes commitment, it takes sacrifice. So he gives the leader his phone number and said, just give me a call. But he never heard from him again. Now, as unlikely friends, they don't come cheap or over a simple conversation. They require time, commitment, and sacrifice. Everything Jesus has given to make you his unlikely friend. Let's pray.